couple of things before diving into God's Word this morning. Last week, we highlighted the Never Too Young group and the ways that they're being the hands and the feet of Jesus in Emporia. This past Monday, KSNT came down from Topeka to interview them, and they shot footage, and they're going to show it tomorrow, Monday, May 4th at 5 p.m. Um, so be sure to check that out. <clears throat> and let's pray that God will use that to widen his fame. Second, in the next week or so, we're hoping to launch a prayer initiative. So be looking for those details in the near future also. Before jumping into this week's sermon, I just want to let you know that this current sermon series is brought to you by the Colorado Board of Tourism and Travel. Uh, last week, someone commented that whenever they hear one of my sermons, they want to go to the mountains, Colorado in specific. Oh, if we only could, right? Well, last week, I talked about the emotional reality that many of us are dealing with in these unique times. I've heard from a good number that the message of the Psalms of lament was much needed. The laments speak of our need to experience our emotions rather than denying them or stuffing them, giving voice of them to God. And then also of our need to turn our attention toward Him and reaffirm the reality that He is there, present in the midst of our difficulties, and that we can trust Him with our lives. I also talked about the fact that we cannot allow our lives to be driven by our emotions. As good as they are, being given by God, they are fallen and they cannot be fully trusted by themselves. And they cannot be the compass by which we chart our course. So I want to take a different tack with the topic of our emotions this morning. I want to give you another reason to pay attention to your emotions and the resulting behavior. For though our behavior is not meant to follow our emotions, the reality is that it often does especially in times of pressure or when put over the heat. And if we'll pay close attention to our emotions and the behavioral reactions they engender in us, they can be a great teaching tool in the forming of our spiritual lives. Let me explain. God's overarching purpose in our lives is our well-being and flourishing. That's why God promises in Romans 8.28 to cause all things to work together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. God promises to use all things for our good. And the best thing that can happen to us is to be formed into the image of Jesus. And many times that takes pressure and heat. It will take the crucible of a refining fire in our lives. There will be times in our lives when God allows difficulties to enter into our lives, either through individual struggle or corporate struggle, like we're facing now with this virus. Though God will not be the source of the difficulty, He will take it and He will use it as a means of purifying my faith and forming me more fully into His image. But only if we will pay close attention and work with Him in the process. In times of difficulty or pressure or struggle, or even new things, our emotions become, can become more volatile and intense, right? We talked about that last week. This is normal. It's okay. If you felt some emotional upheaval in a time of upheaval, in a time of upheaval, well, welcome to the human race. 
But times of upheaval, upheaval and difficulty and pain and crisis will impact, impact our emotions in other deeper ways. And when they do, our emotions and our response to them can be telling us something very important about ourselves. We talked about this in our idolatry series, that when we've placed our heart and our affections and trust in something other than Him, and when that thing is threatened or is lost, we will have strong emotional responses to that. And as you know, when under pressure, some of the intense emotional reactions that come out of my heart and flow over into my attitudes and my actions only serve to reveal the real me, so to speak. Through the pressure and heat of difficulty, what is truly in my heart will overflow into my words, my attitudes, and my behavior. It's what Jesus was talking about in Luke 6.45 when he said, Good people bring good things out of the good they've stored up in their hearts. But evil people bring evil things out of the evil they have stored up in their hearts. People speak the things that are in their hearts. Or as some older translations put it, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, in the midst of, an, of a, a time of difficulty like this, when you find yourself, your anger, sorry, sorry, your anger suddenly and strongly flaring up, and then you react from that emotion and yell at a child or spouse or a sibling, it's simply revealing to you something that was already inside of you. Or when you find your fear levels ramp up to unhealthy extremes that lead you to develop worst-case scenarios in your mind, which in turn only engender greater fear, which thereby leads to being overly cautious and controlling, that difficulty is simply revealing to you something that was already inside of you. Those of you who struggle with fear like that, like I have in points of my life, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The wise person will take notice of their emotional life, especially those intense, inordinate emotions like intense fear or disproportionate anger or deep sorrow or overwhelming guilt and shame. They will take those intense emotional reactions, especially as they influence our behavior in an unhealthy way, and with God's help ask diagnostic questions of themselves and of their heart seeking to know what God is revealing and where He is wanting to be at work as He seeks to form my character more into His likeness. Wise people will take notice of those strong emotional responses brought up under pressure and heat, and they will engage in the ancient spiritual practice called examine. I've talked about it before. You can see in that word examine the same root for our word examination. Wise people will prayerfully ask the question, Lord, what are you showing me about my heart? This difficulty has brought something out of me. What lays at the root of that? And what new work are you wanting to have in my life? This is what David did in Psalm 139, 23-24 when he prayed, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Now, please know that not all of my emotions indicate the presence of an underlying sin issue. 
However, intense emotions can be a good indicator of a need to look under the hood, so to speak. And a word of caution to those of you who are highly introspective. Don't overthink this. Remember, there is a difference between false guilt and true guilt. The former, false guilt, enslaves you. The latter, true guilt, sets you free to become more like Jesus. So please don't get bogged down in unrelenting introspection. So I want to use a powerful biblical image for this process to explain it more fully. And to do that, we need to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-7. to Interestingly, I know of several pastors who are turning their people's attention to the text of 1 Peter in the midst of this virus. This is a great book for us in our current context. 1 Peter was written by Peter at a time when the early Jesus community was beginning to suffer intense and widespread persecution for their faith. It was likely written around 64 AD when Nero was ramping up his persecution of Jesus' followers in the empire. It was to this group of believers, of suffering believers, that Peter wrote this book. Though we're not experiencing anywhere near the level of pain and difficulty that they were, there are still principles we can take from his letter. So here is what Peter wrote. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These trials will show you that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire, tests, and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. That purity of faith will result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. In this text, Peter is calling us to give our praise to God, to extol Him, to make much of Him, because of the great mercy He has shown us. God did that when he gave us a new spiritual birth into his family. And this birth into spiritual life brought us into two key realities. In verse 3 and in verse 4, I want you to circle the word into. First, this new birth has brought us into a living hope. A hope that we are held secure in him and that death and suffering will not have the final word in our lives that we will be raised on the last day to live and reign with Him on a new and fully restored creation. We are convinced of this because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If you haven't listened to my Easter sermon given on April 12th or seen our resurrection fact or fiction video on the church's Facebook page, I encourage you to go to our sermon archive or to the church's Facebook page to listen to or to watch them. For the resurrection is the one objective event in history that people who follow Jesus base their whole hope upon. Second, this new birth has brought us into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. An inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. The inheritance is not heaven, but it is kept in heaven. An important distinction that we'll have to wait for another time when I have more time.
And our hope is that he is keeping that inheritance for us until that day of his return. Put a box around the word you that ends verse 4, and then draw a line to the first word of verse 5, which is who. <clears throat> so this inheritance is kept for you, for us, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming salvation that is to be revealed in the last time. That ultimate salvation being the source of our hope and the focus on our and the focus of our inheritance. We are promised that he will shield us. Underline that word shielded in verse 5. Shield doesn't mean that he will keep me from difficulty. I know because one, the people this letter were written to were in intense were in the midst of an intense storm. And two, because he tells us in verse 6 that we will suffer grief in all kinds of trials. What it means then is that God has the power to keep me from and deliver me from being overwhelmed and overcome by the difficulties that enter into my life. Just as God promises in Isaiah 43 2, where he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Again, this is not a promise of a life free of difficulty but a life where I can be shielded from the prospect of being overwhelmed by those trials. And more importantly, a life where God will, with great love and intentionality, take those random difficulties and he'll use them to refine my faith, my life, and my character. These trials are a refining fire. They're not a consuming fire. And that is why Peter says in the beginning of verse 6, that in all this you greatly rejoice. Now look at verse 7. It's my own translation. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. I find it so interesting that Peter uses the imagery of a refiner's fire. This is actually a common metaphor used in the Bible for the way in which God uses suffering and difficulty to purify us. Let me offer a quick overview of what refining fire entails. It comes from the process called smelting. Smelting is the process of removing the impurities from a precious metal by using heat and pressure. The end goal of smelting was to get a precious metal into its purest form so that it could be formed into something that was either useful or beautiful, or best of all, both. Here is the process in simple form. In smelting, a first century Roman metallurgist would take some mined ore that was known to contain gold. That ore would then be hammered down into small fragments. And as you read about this, the words most commonly used of this process are crushed and pulverized. I prefer the word hammered since I'm personally involved in this refining process. The word hammer feels just a little better to me than pulverized. Interestingly, this part of the process is called benefication, with the same root word behind our word benefit. They would then put that broken, crushed fragments of, of, of ore into a crucible, a fire-proof melting pot that was able to withstand the intense heat. That crucible is then placed into a heated furnace where the ore and everything in it becomes molten. 
The refiner then watches as the ore melts in the crucible, and as it melts, impurities float to the top and form on the surface, either as slag or dross. The refiner then removes the dross and the slag from the top of the gold by skimming the impurities off of the surface of the molten rock. They then increase the heat of the furnace, and they place the crucible back into the fire. The higher heat serves to release and reveal new impurities, which again rise to the top. As those new impurities rise to the top, they are skimmed off. And then the refiner repeats the process, repeats the process again and again, as many times as are needed to remove all impurities and eventually have pure gold. I have read that in the refining of silver, they know when it's reached that purity, when the refiner can actually look into the top of the crucible and they can see their own reflection in the top of the silver. Uh, something very instructive, I think. To get pure gold, the furnace eventually needs to be heated to 1,947 degrees Fahrenheit. I can't even imagine that. Once all these impurities have been removed, the gold while it's in that liquid and very pliable state, it's poured into molds that form ingots, small chunks or really small bars of gold. Then once they cool off and solidify, the ingots are then sold to smiths who then form the gold into whatever is desired, be it utensils or jewelry or coins. To do that, a smith takes an ingot and either hammers it, hopefully not pulverizes it, into its final form, or heats it up again and melts it again, pouring it into a mold to get the final product. Without both the hammering and the intense heat, gold can never be released from the shrouding ore to take its purest form in order to be made into something beautiful and useful. Again, the end goal of the smelting process was to get a precious metal into its purest form so that it could be formed into something that was either useful or beautiful, or again, best of all, both. The refiner works with gold. Our refiner works with our souls. And the refiner works, one, to purify it through hammering and heat in order to reveal and remove impurities. Two, making it more pliable. Three, so that it can be ultimately patterned formed and fashioned through a mold into something both useful to him and beautiful. Do you see how this applies to the spiritual life? As you all know, suffering and difficulty are often the quickest and most effective um, ways to spiritual growth and to being formed in the image of Jesus, if you'll work with him. Let me explain how this relates, um, how this works and how it relates to our emotions and our resulting behavior. Specifically, the hammering of difficulty serves to soften us up, so to speak, and the fire of difficulty makes us liquid and pliable, if we will allow it to do so. That fire also causes our impurities to rise to the top, so to speak, through our intense emotional reactions and our ensuing attitudes and actions. And this is also we can be formed in the image and likeness of Jesus. God uses trials to release what is already present within us, the impurities, the dross and slag of our hearts, so to speak. And through our intensified emotional reactions and the resulting attitudes, words, and behaviors to show us that. 
You see, difficulty doesn't create emotional responses. It doesn't generate bad attitudes or inappropriate or sinful behavior. It only intensifies what is already inside of you. That's what Jesus taught. Uh, it's like you're a beautiful, opaque mug that can, can conceal the internal reality of the liquid that it holds. If you've ever been to a sporting event, you know or you have seen of what I speak. But all it takes for us, for the inside, what's inside to come out, is for the mug to get, to get bumped or jarred, right? That's what difficulties do to us. They bump us. They hammer us. They put us into the fire. And the impurities rise to the top in our intensified emotions and the resulting outbursts. And in releasing the internal reality, God is intentionally revealing to us um, within our own hearts where He desires to be at work, refining us in the image of His Son. Let me take it one step further. That's actually the beauty of the crucible of community, and I said that correctly, the crucible of community, and the crucible of family, of marriage, and especially of children. As Gary Thomas points out in his book, Sacred Marriage and Sacred Parenting, it is within the context of our families and the ways in which we bump into each other, especially in times like these when we're spending more time than ever together. The many of our inner idols are bumped and strong emotions ensue with attitudes and behaviors following fast on their heels. So you see, God's end game in your life and in mine is to form us in the image of Jesus, to form, conform, and transform us more into his likeness. He does this through many means. He does it through his word. He does it through prayer, through up-close and personal community, and also, and probably most effective, through trouble. The reason he allows us to enter into times like this is to use the heat of the situation to bring to the surface what's already there deep down inside, which is not probably fully clear to us. And if we allow him to have his work, we can join him in his transforming work. And with his help, by prayerfully and wisely beginning to remove that dross and slag from the surface of our lives. And as those impurities are worked out of us, we become a little more like him. And then, I say this from experience, he will allow us to enter the fire again in the future, not out of a morbid sense of torture, but out of a father's great love, to allow more of those impurities to float to the surface, fully into our view, so that we can join him in the work of purifying that part of our hearts and our lives. So it goes, living life, seeking to become more like him, taking advantage of every possible means, daily time in his word, regular time spent with him in prayer, regular and deep community with others who can see into my life and help me as I grow into Christ-likeness. And yes, living into difficulty, knowing that through it, God will reveal to me areas in my heart where he is seeking mastery. Because as we all know, suffering and difficulty are often the quickest and most effective way to spiritual growth and to being formed into the image of Jesus if we will work with him in it. And if we do that, if we allow God to have his work in us, then God will be made increasingly famous through our lives, both individually and as a community. 
That's why Peter wrote in verse 7, that purity of faith will result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So let us not just seek to survive in this season, but to thrive in it by joining God in the purifying of our lives. So let me come back to family and relationships for a minute. If you haven't already figured this out, all of this bumping into each other in difficult and uncertain times can create strain. Strain on our marriages, strain on our relationships with our children, strain on our relationships with roommates or siblings. And if not handled properly, if we do not allow God to have his refining work, it can generate inordinate amounts of conflict and additional heat in the house, heat that's come from within us. Fault lines that were barely visible or even invisible to us may have appeared. Perhaps fault, fault lines have suddenly and shockingly widened. Ones that seem small to us have gotten a lot bigger. This is a very real reality, and the staff and leadership at 12th are very well aware of that. We already know that mental health issues are on the rise because of all that's going on. Suicides in many places in the country have dramatically increased, sadly. We already know that domestic abuse, abuse numbers are going up, and that's just what's reported. With the stay-at-home stay orders creating an unexpected zone of secrecy where even more is going on than we know. And the news out of China should be a warning for us. As they left their lockdown, the number of divorce filings skyrocketed to record numbers. This virus and the accompanying countermeasures have put a great deal of stress on individuals and families. As we give spiritual leadership to 12th, we don't want to be negligent of that reality. So I have said this may have brought to light stress fractures in our marriage or in our parenting or in our other relationships. Stress fractures that were there but lay hidden below the surface. Perhaps this has generated some personal concern. We're aware of the possibility, of that possibility, we in leadership here, and so we're wanting to be on the front end of that. We're wanting to see if there is anyone in the body who feels they could benefit from a solid biblical course on marriage or on parenting or on having healthy relational skills. So we've set up a very brief online survey. Survey. It's fully anonymous. We're simply wanting to know if there is the felt need for help in a marriage relationship or a parenting relationship or relationships in general. So if you're feeling the need for one or all of those or some of those, click on the tab above that says survey or the link in the notes and the notes should be on your right and it will take you to the survey. If you're watching this later offline on YouTube, um, then go to the church's online page or the church's Facebook page and you will find the link to the survey there. Now, don't take this survey as a whole family um, or as a couple, but rather we encourage you to take it individually. We will look at this in the coming week and from the results determine if we need to offer something. If there's a need in the body, we will, we will work and begin to organize some things to help us in the areas of greatest need. In doing this, we're not wanting to point out anyone's faults. None of us is perfect. None of us fully formed into Jesus' image. We're all work in progress, right? And at various times in our lives, though, we all need help with our marriages or our parenting 
or our relationships. I just want to remind you the Bible is full of messed up families and individuals who God greatly used. People like Sarah and Abraham, Jacob and Leah, Moses and Miriam, people like Samuel and David and Peter. We are not trying to shine a light on a pain point in people's lives. We're only trying to provide help and resources that can strengthen our marriages, strengthen our parenting, strengthen our families, strengthen our relationships. Okay, enough said. If you find yourself neck deep in the flood of this virus, let me share with you a psalm I read this week. It's Psalm 59. And looking in verse 9, verse 16 and 17, here's what David wrote. O my strength, I watch for you. You, O God, are my fortress, my loving God. I will sing of your strength, and in the morning I will sing of your love, for you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. O my strength, I sing praise to you. You, O God, are my fortress, my loving God. And let me close uh, in a prayer of being refined. A prayer taken from King David, Joseph Bailey, and an anonymous African girl. A prayer that you can find in the notes tab to the right, and which I encourage you to use daily during this upcoming week. Would you join me as I pray? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Lord of the compost heap, you take garbage and you turn it into soil, good soil. Soil for seeds to root and grow with wildest increase. Soil for flowers to bloom with brilliant beauty. Would you please take all the garbage of my life, Lord of the compost heap, and please turn it into soil, good soil and then plant seeds to bring forth fruit and beauty and profusion. And finally, O great chief, light a candle within my heart that I may see what is truly inside. And please sweep the rubbish from your dwelling place. Into that prayer, all of God's people said, Amen. So be it. After the service, you are sent to not only be the hands and feet of Jesus this week, but among other things, sent to take the survey.